0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Drent. I serve as an elder here at Mission Road. If I haven't had a chance to, to meet you and get to know you, i um, so thankful to be here this morning directing our attention to God's Word and, and even more specifically during this hour in the attributes of who God is, our glorious God. Um, we've been in a series our glorious God, and, and we've been looking at the attributes of God in categories. We've been in two general categories. The first one was the attributes of God's greatness. Uh, so these were emphasizing, these are the attributes that emphasize the vast extent of God's infinite nature in ways that are entirely unlike us. So these are things like his self existence, his infin- infinity. Um, He's all-powerful, he's unchanging, things like that. And then the the second group, which is the group that we're in now, is his attributes of what we're calling attributes of goodness. So these emphasize God's perfection and how he deals in relationship with his, his creatures. So his graciousness, his justice, his faithfulness, compassionateness, his kindness, things like that. So today we're going to be deepening our understanding about God by looking at two attributes, um, but it's goodness and wisdom. And I understand there's a little bit of uh, funniness to how we've grouped things in the sense that uh, we're in a category of God's goodness, and now we're going to talk about the, the, uh, the attribute of goodness specifically, along with his wisdom. And that's okay. Uh, as, as its own attribute of God, we see that Scripture actually has quite a bit to say and extols God for this attribute in ways that we should be very familiar with as its own attribute even though it gives expression to many other things we've already studied his love his grace his mercy Um, these are all parts of his goodness or i wouldn't say parts i guess Um, those are all expressions of his goodness and so we want to look at that today you know i found as i was looking at these and and i've just been so blessed as we all are when we turn our attention to god's word and we get to know who he is more i found it difficult To get started with these in particular, but I think in general, sometimes we we need to acknowledge some challenges with the attributes that we're looking at. One of the challenges is this. Some of these terms are just so basic to us as humans. Uh, Good. (laughs) You know, we we use this term all the time in common ways that things are good. It's it's a common adjective. You know, my lunch was good. (laughs) That's not exactly how Scripture uses this about God, Right? And so our minds can struggle immediately to grasp the extent, the, ex- the uh, expanse, the depth of what Scripture means when it says that God is good. So that's one challenge we need to seek to overcome as we study this. And, and the other challenge I find is that we naturally tend to think of these attributes in terms of us, right? And, and each week as we've studied these, we've actually reminded ourselves of this. God is not like us. And so... Um, When we say that God is good or wise as attributes, we may initially relate to these terms in terms of our goodness and the wisdom that we have. Um, But as we read Scripture, we are quickly faced by the fact that our version of these attributes are limited and flawed and unlike our God, and our basis of understanding of them is limited and weak and in many ways actually corrupted. So we're attentive when the Lord corrects such thinking in Psalm 50 when he says, you thought I was just like you. So we combat this, these gaps, these natural challenges to this by first acknowledging that up front that our thinking is, is not like God's and, and we need to be ready to accept that. And secondly, we humble and submit ourselves to God's word to shape and instruct our understanding. So um, if you've got your hand out and you're ready to get started, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, thank you for this morning. We are so thankful for the truth of your word that can not only clarify things for us that would be otherwise unknown or or muddled, but that you would challenge our, our thinking that we would otherwise trust in, that you would grow us. Father, enlarge our thinking to know you and comprehend you more. And while that is a challenge for us mortals, we ask that you would use just the effective work of your spirit in the lives of those who seek you and love you through the truth of your word to, just, to accomplish just this for your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your handout, you can look at the first section under the define it. This is the pattern that we've been following for each of these attributes. And we'll find two definitions because we're doing two at one. By the way, as I Laid all the truth out and the things that we can find in Scripture that I could find in these. I noticed that we're not covering everything, and then even then, then when I did, it's like we need we need two Sunday school classes for two attributes, don't we? But no, we're going to do two today. Um, so we'll, we'll be uh, we'll be looking at this a little bit of a, a high level, uh, but getting a good idea of of what Scripture has to say about this. But we're going to start with these definitions and just to get started we won't find these particular definitions in scripture. We'll just say it up front. These are definitions written by godly men, um, and who, who have searched scripture to find out what it says about these attributes and then tried to define them in something that we could like use as a starting point to get our minds wrapped around, just get started with. So if we're concerned about like what is good, <laughs> we could do that. And so, um, Let's learn from these men just to kind of get us kicked off and see how they work to define these systematically. So let me read this first definition of goodness by MacArthur and Mayhew uh, that that they put together. Um, And I'll read it without the parenthetical statements just to help be clear because they can be convoluted. Here we go. So God's goodness is that he is the perfect sum, source, and standard of that which is wholesome, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. Um, I don't know how you would define goodness, but if I were just talking to generally, it, it wouldn't have been there, so I'm thankful to help get started there. But in this helpful definition, goodness here is that which is wholesome, that is uh, conducive to well-being, that which is virtuous, that which is beneficial, and that which is beautiful. And if you kind of start with that as like, okay, I'm getting a handle as to what we mean by good, and I may not just call my lunch that, although there are some lunches, you know, that might, might have some of those aspects. Uh, this is speaking of God in this regard. So then we turn to the other part of the definition where he's saying God is the perfect sum of all of that goodness as described here, meaning God himself is good in his moral excellence and perfect character. And God is the source of all goodness given that he is the sum and source of all goodness. um, He is the originator of of all goodness. All goodness comes from him is what he means by that. And given that, he is the standard of all goodness. Um, That means that he's then the measure because it comes from him and he is the sum total of it. So he is the measure of goodness and and that that we would then decide what is good. Um, The standard of goodness is what God is. And what God does and what He approves. So, as we look at Scripture in a moment, we're gonna see that Scripture refers to God's goodness uh, as a fundamental aspect of His nature, like this. And it refers to His moral character and perfect, or His moral excellence and perfect character, and His benevolence. In fact, much of Scripture is dedicated to expounding on God's benevolence and His goodness and His benevolence, especially toward His people. Uh, A.W. Pink, in his Attributes of God book, summarizes something I thought was helpful. It says, all that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences, cannot be otherwise than good. As it is written, God saw everything that he made, and it was good as it went forth from him. He also says, all the goodness there is in any creature has been imparted from the creator, but God's goodness is underived.'" For it is the essence of his eternal nature. Um, so, as we're framing just what do we mean by good or goodness, um, it's also helpful. I think J.I. Uh, Packer helpfully adds an insight there that when God describes himself as to Moses proclaiming all his goodness, he speaks, God speaks of his abundance or his abounding goodness. That is, God's goodness is marked by an incredible generosity and is a focal point of the goodness of God. So we need to remember that. He's not stingy in any of these things. Part of what makes him good is his abundance and generosity in that. Let's move on to wisdom and look at the definition there. Uh, This definition is by Wayne Grudem, and he actually starts with a little definition, but I thought his follow-up was helpful, so I put the whole paragraph in this. Let's read it. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and best means to those goals. This definition goes beyond the idea of God knowing all things and specifies that God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always bring about the best results from God's ultimate perspective, and they will bring about those results through the best possible means. So by God's very character, he always chooses the best goals. He brings about the best results using the best means. He has ultimate wisdom. We say he is all wise. So considering these two definitions, we can recognize an obvious logical connection between God's wisdom and his his goodness. And it it makes sense that... um, like, by the way, best in this modern definition that we're looking at here means that means the most possible good, so you can see the connection there. But it also makes sense that if God is good and everything he does is good, in an ultimate sense of the word good, that it must take incredible wisdom to know what is good in every situation and wisdom on how to bring that about. Of course, all the other attributes of God are not cut off and parsed, right? These are all about God, and so we see his goodness and all of his other attributes. And we see his wisdom played out with all those other attributes as well. And this is where a full orbed understanding of our God can be so powerful for us in our living and how we look at our God. So you and I are certainly not capable of knowing in all circumstances what is best and how to bring it about by every means. So here we're getting a, a glimpse of what God's wisdom is like, and that is definitely not mine. Okay, so those are some basic definitions. Give us a general frame of reference for the study and moving on to the prove it section in your outline. Let's turn our attention to scripture now and get a taste of how God has described himself regarding these attributes and how he instructs us to understand them. Scripture indeed describes and demonstrates God's goodness and wisdom individually, but as we look at these, we're going to see that connectedness that we've talked about, either explicitly or implicitly. But for our time today, we're going to start by looking at some specifics of each of them, and then we're going to um, look at some places where we see God's wisdom and goodness both demonstrated so that we can try to wrap our minds around this a little bit more. Starting off with God's goodness, Number one, on that first bullet point, God is the source of all good. Scripture is very clear about this. Um, If you turn to James 1, we'll see this. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of Scripture because we're, again, skimming over the surface and we don't get to do deep dives. But this should be helpful for anybody who is, is further compelled by God's goodness. Use this in your devotional time to continue to learn about and to worship rightly. God and his goodness. But let's start off by God as the source of all good. That was important in the definition. We'll see it here. James 1.17, we read, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This is a powerful statement. All good things come from him. Here he's called the Father of lights. If there's any good and perfect thing to receive, God is the source. And if it is a gift from God then it's perfect and good. There is no variation in the perfection of his character or his gifts. So this statement, by the way, is given in the middle of James talking about trials and temptation. Uh, He's giving this as an important reality of an encouragement, and in this passage, he has already uh, directly addressed the wisdom of God, and so we see how these attributes are to be instructive to us as well. Number two, there is no one good except God. Mark 10, 18, and in Luke 18, I'll just read this briefly. Jesus asserts, no one is good except God. Jesus himself said that. And here in that situation, Jesus was correcting a man for throwing that term good around just to anyone whom he wanted to ingratiate himself to. And in his, in his correction, Jesus points to the only one being who is good in and of himself. Um. You see, Scripture acknowledges that people can do good things, which, by the way, just is a side item on that. Of course, Jesus is good, and he is God. But by acknowledging that to that man he was speaking to, that man either had to admit he's throwing the term around and doesn't understand what real good this is, or he's admitting you're God and realizing the implication for himself, standing there talking to him, calling him good when he is not. So it's an amazing scene there. But you see, Scripture acknowledges that People can do good things, too. It's not just that God is the only one who can do good things. And in fact, we are called to do good. If you look briefly down at number six on this list, Roman numeral, that is, um, we can actually see that God's goodness is a communicable attribute, meaning that in some capacity, we can share this attribute. And he calls us to do good. Uh, Just a couple of references uh, that are noted there uh, in writing to Galatians in chapter 610. Paul instructs. The people, he says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us, to, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Jesus in Luke 6 instructs, do good to those who hate you. And he goes on in verse 33 to say, do good to those, or if you do good, to those who do good to you. What credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So you see, even though God is the only good being in and of himself, Even a sinner um, doing a good deed in a moment is doing good, but that doesn't make him good. So God is good in himself, and as the essence of who he is, he is the only one who who is wholly good and is the source of good. And as I quoted earlier, Pink said it well, all the goodness that there is in any other creature has been imparted to them from the creator, but God's goodness is underived for it is the essence of his eternal nature. So you see how we start to see, look at scripture and we start to realize goodness is a little bit different than maybe how I wake up in the morning and think of that naturally. So indeed, this is a remarkable character attribute should it draw us to him and to want to know him. Uh, the, just to touch on these other bullets here, to whom is God good? God is good to all. And number three, Psalm 145 forty five nine says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. It just proclaims God is good to all people. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This means that everyone experiences God's goodness in some ways. And nobody can complain that God has not shown them goodness. This is even true of the unbeliever who lives an evil life and rejects God and is even condemned to hell. In Jesus' parable of the rich man in Hades found in Luke 16, the rich man received good things in life, which were blessings from God. But because he rejected God, that's the extent of the goodness that he experienced of God. But even he couldn't complain that he hadn't received good things. So here's the key, everyone experiences God's goodness in some ways, but God's people experience God's goodness in all of his ways. Look at number four, God gives all his goodness to all his, or, or to his people. Just a couple quotes here, Psalm eighty-four, eleven. For the Lord God is a, sh- a sun and a shield, the Lord gives grace and glory. Listen to this, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? <laughs> Coming from the source and the sum totality of all goodness, he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that? Here we clearly see the generosity that Packer noted as the theme of God's goodness. No good thing does he withhold. One of my favorites, Ephesians 1.13, is, is similar in a spiritual sense. It says, blessed be... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means he's withheld nothing that heaven has to offer in the spiritual realm from those who love God. Also, we see that God only does good when looking in this category. He only does good things for his children. Um, Go ahead and, and turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 9 through 11, this actually has a whole lot of connections, but we'll just touch on it. Matthew 7, 9 through 11, he says, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will not give him a snake, will he? Or he will not give him a snake, will he? And then this is the key, verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So it's obvious that the goodness is on display right here. But do you notice we have the fact that he gives good gifts is his goodness on display and his generosity. But knowing how to give good gifts, even much more than our earthly fathers, knowing how to do that is wisdom. And as a father who wishes to give good gifts to my children, I'm often confounded as to what is good. In fact, many times I give good gifts and it spoils them or or, or gives the wrong impression, and then I have to learn how to train against that. Now, my kids are grown, um, much maturity there, but I remember when they were little in particular, I would give a good gift and did not bring the same result that I thought. You know, it made discontentment or made argument or something. God knows how to give good gifts, and he knows how to do it so well that he can outdo anything that we're used to, and so it's in a different category. And another important and helpful passage that all Christians should train their hearts to know, believe, and trust that God does good things for his children is Romans 8.28. I hope it's not a platitude in your heart only or something embroidered somewhere. I hope this is what helps us cling to God's goodness in all things in life but Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose there is where the goodness and wisdom of God will so personally intersect with every Christian we are assured that in all circumstances in life even in painful trials that God is good in what he has sovereignly ordained for you and I toward his good purpose. He is wise to know that that is good and wise to know how to accomplish it for, for, for uh, his causes and to cause good for you and his glory. What goodness this is. So if we expand our view just a bit on both of these passages... We see that not only does God give all good things to his children, wants his children to look to him for goodness. and He is the goodness that we seek, and he tells us to come to him to get it. This is another part of this. Just backing up a little bit in that passage in Matthew 7, just before the loaf and the stone statement. We see in verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find not, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be open. And then it goes into the passage we just read. And then, just after Romans eight thirty two or Romans eight twenty eight and eight thirty two, Paul holds out God's most gracious gift as the example of how gracious He is as a motivator to look to Him for goodness. Nowhere else, look to Him for goodness that we need. He says He. In verse 32, did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, not withholding good. God gives all his goodness to his children. His goodness is abundantly gracious. And as we read this, we look intently at how scripture describes his goodness. Do you get the sense in your own heart, in your own mind, that you tend to think less extravagantly? extravagantly about God's goodness than Scripture does? Or even if you already know that God is good, aren't you strengthened and encouraged to hear God's word describe and articulate his goodness? This is why we should read Scripture carefully, always attentive of what it teaches us about God, how God describes and reveals himself. Rightly understood, his goodness is praiseworthy. He deserves our praise because he is God. All are called To praise him for his goodness. That's bullet number five there. It's a bunch of passages here. Scripture is full of invitations, calls, and commands to respond to in to praise or in praise to his goodness as we look as we see that and experience it. First Chronicles 6:34 is indicative of many of these. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 106 One, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The refrain is repeated in Psalm 107, 118, 136, and others. It's clear that his goodness is reason to praise him. And then we, uh, in our outline, we touched on number six earlier, that his goodness is communicable. So let's take a look at some passages about God's wisdom. God's wisdom, first off, I want to reiterate, we're just skipping across the surface of extremely deep waters in scriptures, as we talk about these attributes. There are so many amazing realities revealed to us about God's wisdom. And our goal is to look at some key aspects to give us a grasp of the biblical view of God's wisdom and to start to make some applications. So starting with one, scripture affirms God's wisdom. Throughout scripture, we see direct attributions of God's wisdom. In fact, one of my favorites is the end of Romans, Paul lands it, sticks the landing, with an attribution to God's wisdom, saying, "To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory, forever, Amen." It's in Romans sixteen twenty seven. Job twelve thirteen says, "With him our wisdom and might; to him belong counsel and understanding." Some more examples: Isaiah fifty five nine says, "God." Um, about God, says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. He says to us, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Point two, there are more examples of that, of course. Point two, worldly wisdom is not God's wisdom. This is an important one. I um, wish we had more time to work in uh, all the applications of this. We'll hit a few at the end here, but um, scripture reveals that the wisdom of men and that of this world is, is limited But by nature, it is also corrupt, because it is driven by goals that are not God's perfection. It is driven by a sin nature that seeks selfish and sinful ends. There's some passages there that you can turn to and study through them, just to touch on a few, but show that Scripture actually warns us of the difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom from above. We need to be aware that they're different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul speaks of the wisdom contrast here between God and the world. And in brief, we don't have time to read it right now, it's a longer passage, but it's a a rich one. It explains that God's wisdom is far above man's wisdom, and man's greatest wisdom actually sees God's wisdom as foolish, because it can't comprehend it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. We'll see it in a little bit later as we look at the gospel as an expression of God's goodness and wisdom, uh, this passage. But moving on, scripture also warns us not to adopt worldly wisdom as our own philosophy. This is an important element of understanding God's wisdom separate and then wanting God's wisdom instead of our own. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Look, while this has always been true, can I just say this is particularly timely and critical in the culture that we live in right now, with fast and furious news feeds, social media, bloggers, YouTubers, TikTokers, influencers? It is so easy to get caught up in hearing the world talk about their ideas about life, what is wise, and begin to listen to it, start to see life according to it, and actually start to living life according to it, as though this worldly wisdom is our reality, but God's word, word tells us and warns us the world's wisdom is incompatible with God's wisdom, and when we submit ourselves to the world's philosophy and empty deception, our minds are actually being taken captive by the deception of the world, When we are captive to worldly worldviews, we are not operating according to God's wisdom that we're studying right here. The only real wisdom that knows and always chooses the best goals brings about best results by the best means. So to be captive to worldly philosophies is to operate without the wisdom of God and goodness of God that it brings us to live in. And if we continue to go down that path, it leads to destruction. So we are warned against, God, against worldly wisdom and instructed to seek the true wisdom from God and his word because in his goodness, he shares his wisdom with us. Look at point three. God's wisdom is communicable. Communicable, but in part, which means he shares it. Scripture explains how we ourselves can gain God's wisdom and live according to it. Um, so first of all, there's some sub-bullet points here on the back. Um, the first one is that it, we kind of walk through how it is shareable or accessible. It's gained through the fear of the Lord. Proverbs nine ten you may be familiar with it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 111, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There are many, many valuable and sweet passages that speak of the fear of the Lord as the way to wisdom and understanding what we need. And from here, It's also the beginning and the fountain of all blessings from God. So we must have a humble and reverent heart before God. The second sub-point there, we are to seek him for his wisdom. We mentioned this earlier, but James 1.5 is so explicit. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously. There's his goodness again. And without reproach, and it will be given to him. Generous goodness of giving us wisdom, but we have to ask of him, which, by the way, means we need to acknowledge that we need his wisdom, not our own. And many of us never get past our own wisdom because we we foolishly think it is wisdom. But God's word shows us differently. Found in his word, his wisdom makes the simple wise, that next bullet point, it is more valuable than gold, I love Psalm 19, 7, verse 7. We learn that wisdom makes simple-minded people to be wise, and it comes from God's instruction in Scripture. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's what it's capable of doing. Deuteronomy 4 also says the law is revealed to us, or uh, that the, the law that he revealed to his people is their wisdom and their understanding such that the world observes God's people they will say, surely, this is a great nation that is wise and and an understanding people because they have the law of the Lord. It's clear we need to seek to learn God's wisdom from his revealed word. And when we do, we are made wise. So we need to make sure that we understand that while we can... uh, partake in God's wisdom. He shares his wisdom. We can learn of it. We cannot have wisdom as God has wisdom in the sense that God is the source of wisdom. He's all wise, and we don't share his his omniscience with him, right? So we can only know it in part, but even in part, his wisdom is more valuable than gold, and it leads to prosperity in the richest sense of life. That's why Proverbs 3 talks of it that way. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than, gold, than jewels and nothing you desire compares to her. Can I just confess that probably challenges our hearts? We don't usually think of wisdom like that. Our hearts desire so many things, so it's good to put it on par with that and compare and go, wow, I need to grow. If I don't see wisdom as such. And lastly, one more aspect of God's wisdom in us. Scripture explains that God's wisdom in us bears fruit of humility, gentleness, and peace. James 3, 13 through 18 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior, or by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. but the wisdom of from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, Scripture instructs on the stark difference between godly and worldly wisdom, and this time by its fruit. What a helpful passage. By the way, next time you're in an argument with someone, you can check yourself, or if the person's a believer, maybe even the other person. Is the wisdom you're using in this argument pure? Pure? Is it evidence in peaceableness, gentleness, reasonableness, full of mercy, full of good fruits, wavering without fluctuating in hypocrisy? Or is it bitter, but jealous, maybe motivated by ambition of self? What does it say about where your wisdom has come from and what it is you're walking in? It's a good correction to our hearts when we are exhibiting wisdom in our argumentation. Let's move in uh, to God's goodness and wisdom shown. We only have a few minutes on this. But God's goodness and wisdom is shown in scripture, and I'll just touch on these, but it's shown in creation. All throughout creation, Proverbs 3.19 says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heaven. So there's wisdom. Psalm 104, the psalmist is praising God for his wise and good creation. He says, oh Lord, How many are your works? In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And in all of creation, in the account of Genesis 1, it's so amazing. God, the creator, and by the way, the standard of goodness himself, in fullness of wisdom, creates everything in the universe perfectly suited to glorify him. And and then he declares everything he creates as, it was very good. This is perfection. What wisdom to accomplish such a feat, what goodness displayed in the result. Uh, secondly, his goodness and wisdom is shown in his salvation. <laughs> this part of just looking at his goodness and wisdom and salvation, uh, this is a three-part series. I'm pretty sure if, I'll talk to Pastor Rick about that. He'd probably agree, if not like a whole, a whole sermon uh, season. But his salvation, look, in the ultimate sense, we mortals intuitively see God's goodness and salvation Uh, as good for our souls. Um, But just walking through for a moment, not only to recognize God's goodness towards sinners, but also the wisdom that God transcends anything a person could ever conceive or achieve, Scripture's clear. We are deserving of eternal separation from God and eternal punishment, fully deserving. There's no possible way that we could ever pay for the punishment we deserve, and there is no sacrifice in existence perfect enough, potent enough to cover it. There was none existing. But God, <laughs> transcending all our possible solutions for making this right in his infinite wisdom and in goodness expressed in incredible love, fashions his own son into human form so that as a man, he can live perfectly and so he can die a perfect sacrifice for all mankind. 1 Peter 2, 24 summarizes this, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. What a solution. What goodness to actually make it come about. And while we're Standing there in awe of that, God in his goodness and wisdom raised his son from the death, or from death, from the, de- from the dead, and showed him to the world, proving his good and wise plan. Jesus conquered sin and death and offered to unite us to himself in that victory to champion it for us, for free. All who would repent and believe would be saved. There's just... No question why in the book of Romans, at the end of 11 chapters of reflection on the goodness and wisdom of God's plan of redemption, Paul bursts into praise in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. There's just no greater demonstration of God's goodness and wisdom and other attributes coming all together than his work in salvation. There are many other aspects of the gospel of Christ that are rich displays of goodness and wisdom that are even beyond just the salvation of our souls. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 30 proclaims the glories of God, goodness, and wisdom by using what seems to be foolish to the world to be the very wisdom that will save them. In a design so genius, it almost looks like irony. Paul explains that the cross looks like foolishness to wise men. So God, in his goodness, actually has to grant us some of his own wisdom for us to even see it as wise and accept it. A saved person can only boast in the wisdom of God and in his goodness. It leaves no room for boasting. Ephesians 3 6 through 10 highlights another aspect of God's incredible salvation that puts his wisdom and goodness on display. This is where, in, in Christ, God takes a diverse set of people that actually have hated each other for a long time, they're incompatible, and he unifies them in one body in Christ. He calls it a mystery. It reveals what Paul calls a mystery in, in that actually in that passage, verse nine, as the incredible mystery for which ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God may now may, might now be made known through the church. In God's salvation of mankind, it's just it's on display, goodness and wisdom. So to recap, in Scripture, God's goodness and wisdom is shown in creation and salvation, and Lastly, in providence for his people, we've already looked at these, but Romans 8, 28, and we know that that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see his... um, Causing all things to work together to good takes incredible wisdom. The good that God works for in our lives is conformity to his son, and it takes wisdom to accomplish this. then to go back, Psalm 119 is the passage that says, you are good and you do good. This is right on the passage where he's saying, teach me to discern, or teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And that's when he says, you do, do good you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. So God in his wisdom uses these things for our good. Look, let's apply this. Let's just take a couple minutes as we close. I know this was a flyover, but it should be obvious. Many of you should just jump off the page. But first of all, we need to know and remind ourselves of God's goodness and wisdom from Scripture. We need to grow to understand and believe it. Learn how to preach it to your own heart, how to testify it to others. There's a difference between, I've learned this, even this just a week, there's a difference between living in a general sense with an understanding that God is generally good and generally wise versus reading God's word, reading his own description of his goodness and wisdom and then living daily with that knowledge. Guys, I need that right now. I've got decisions that are too big for me. And to rest in God's goodness and his wisdom so it's not on mine, this description just is expansive, far more than my brain or my heart comes up with on its own. So I'm always challenged and encouraged by how Scripture expresses God's goodness and wisdom in ways that are greater, more extravagant, more generous, more deep than my mind comprehends and gives God credit for. And it expresses it with greater confidence and certainty that I'm often able to on my own. My confidence is always bolstered. My affections are always stirred when I read of my God's goodness and wisdom in Scripture than when I just believe it as a general fact. And I, I think you may be able to relate with that. We're, from the same, we're cut from the same cloth, right? So we must study from God's word of God's goodness and his wisdom, and we need to know it in detail, memorize it, know how to preach it to our hearts, how to testify to It's a basic life skill of a believer, especially in trials. Just a couple more as we close. God's goodness and wisdom should compel us to trust him in all aspects of, of our lives for all eternity. Building on that previous point, if we've learned and even memorized God's attributes and to believe them, and then in trials, many of us, as Bible-believing Christians, we know that God is sovereign, and he's all-powerful, so he's not only aware of this trial, he's attending to it, but don't stop there. I think sometimes I do stop there too soon. In our limited vision and wisdom, this alone is not always encouraging to our hearts in our sinfulness. Why? Because we can often convince ourselves that God is in control, but we still doubt his goodness and his wisdom in it. That's my tendency So you must know, believe, and remember in terms that are not fuzzy or vague, but crystal clear from God's word. God is good in all he is doing in this trial. God's wisdom is working everything in this trial for my good and his glory. And by God's goodness and grace, this insight to God's character gives the hearts of every believer everything we need to trust him completely in any circumstance, no matter what happens. His character is... Compels us to trust him in all aspects of our lives and all eternity. The last couple pieces here God seeks wisdom, or uh, seek God's wisdom. We are to seek God's wisdom. And don't trust the wisdom from the world. Be careful what you're listening to, what you're allowing to shape your thinking and how you see the world, yourself, life, and God. Actively seek God's wisdom. Seek and you'll find. He gives generously. Look for it in his word. Pray and interact with him about it. Trust his spirit working through you to to show you and transform you into his likeness and then lastly worship god for his goodness and wisdom especially that goodness and wisdom toward his people he has given his children every good gift every spiritual gift in the heavenly places he pours out his goodness without with holding anything from you and he exercises his wisdom for your good tending to all matters in life to use them for your good. He gives you his wisdom at your request and he displays his goodness and wisdom all around you in creation and salvation in scripture. Worship him for who he is and all his glorious goodness to you, Christian. I hope you're bolstered as we look at our great God, our glorious God together and continue to grow. I hope it gives you moorings for your life and directional fortitude so that you don't swerve particularly in trials that are meant in his wisdom to shape you and teach you about who he is. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the truth of your word that challenges our own wisdom, our own thinking that was foolishness and we were lost in, but for those who have trusted you can grow to understand you in light of real truth. We thank you for your goodness, your generosity toward us. I pray that we would receive all of those good gifts with hearts that give thanks to you, thanks to you in all things as we're commanded because you are good and you are wise. Help us to testify of that to our own hearts so that we can walk in light of that and then testify to others of its reality and our personal testimony of your goodness so that we could be a witness to the world as you've designed in Jesus' name, amen.